Welcome to Charting the Course, a podcast from Full Sail Capital, dedicated to providing you with insights, assurance, and confidence to grow and manage generational wealth. Full Sail Capital is a fiduciary registered investment advisor managing more than $1.5 billion with a focus on integrity, competency, and transparency. Tyler and I are joined again today by Zach Reynolds for another Squared Away podcast, where we talk about I-bonds, interest rates, market timing, and how the current market environment is influencing investor behavior. We know you'll enjoy our conversation and hope it serves you along your journey. Zach, we have a lot of ground to cover, so we're just going to jump right into it. Uh, One of the first things that you talked about that you wanted to cover here in this Squared Away is the topic of I-bonds, and specifically because a few well-known writers who we both like bashed financial advisors and I-bonds. Indeed, yeah. Go ahead. This is the forbidden topic, apparently, according to uh, Jason Zweig of the Wall Street Journal, who, (laughs) like you said, Dexter, I like almost everything he writes. But in this case, I think he missed the mark. And the reason I bring it up, I've I've gotten this question from several clients. So let's just talk about what I-bonds are and the role they can play in a portfolio. And then, you know, people can decide for themselves. So I-bonds are government bonds, U.S. government bonds. They are inflation-protected. They're direct-to-citizen bonds, so you can't buy them from a financial intermediary. Uh, You have to go to uh, ustreasury.gov to actually make these purchases yourself. The current rate on these bonds is 7.12%. How safe is that 7.12% rate? So it's a uh, it's a rate that does change based on the inflation rate. If you had gone back six months ago, it was about half of that. So inflation has come up. The stated interest rate on those bonds have come up. So that's not a guarantee that you'll get that for the life of the bond. But again, they are inflation protected. They're also guaranteed by the U.S. government. So to the extent that the U.S. government is safe and not going to default on their bonds, which it never has before, and it can print money even if it were at risk, they're very safe in that regard. But here are some of the kind of downsides. They are limited to $10,000 per social security number per year. For a very wealthy client, yes, you can go buy $10,000 if you have a three, four, five million million, $5 million portfolio. It's not going to really move the needle that much. And from at least my perspective or an advisor's perspective, it's very likely you have something similar in the portfolio. For us, that would be TIPS bonds, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. They're a little different than I-bonds. And I-bonds have some some advantages over TIPS. But again, you can't buy a very meaningful amount if you have a significant portfolio. Talk to me about the liquidity and time horizon of I-bonds. Yeah, so that's another disadvantage of I-bonds relative to something like a TIPS ETF. A TIPS ETF, you can buy intraday uh, and get your cash if you need it, if you want to reallocate to something else. An I-bond, you have to hold it for at least one year. It has no liquidity for one year. After that, if you hold it for more than one year, but less than five years, and you redeem it, you're going to pay a penalty of the, the previous three months interest. I had a client recently ask about this. He had a relatively short-term need for, you know, 10 $10,000. He's going to need it in a couple years for a specific expense. And I said, yeah, it's a fine investment. You need to take into account that you're going to pay a penalty when you take it out in two years, but it's safe. It's definitely higher than you're going to get from a bank savings account. Right. So, And I think that's probably the best sort of use case. If you have a bank savings account that's paying you 0.02%, you know you're not going to need that money for at least a year and more likely longer than that. It can make great sense to buy 
uh, Ibons, in my view. What I think was frustrating was Jason Zweig uh, at least quoted someone who said, you're never going to hear about this from your financial advisor. So I want everyone to hear from us. They can be an appropriate investment. It, it can be great. I just can't buy it for you. And if you have a very significant portfolio, it's unlikely to move the needle in a big way. Right. Yeah. If you've got a $4 million portfolio and you buy $20,000 worth of I-bonds, 10 for you, 10 for your spouse, you've got a half percent of your portfolio getting this. Exactly. And so that's $20,000 in fees that we are not collecting on a $2 million account. That's not really moving the needle. $20,000 in market value, not $20,000 in fees. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. So one of the other things you touched on in the market update you sent out to clients was the market highs in 2021, which may even be a little bit dated as of the time we're recording (laughs) here. So just as you look back a little bit, just talk to me about what stood out as you looked on some of the stats from the market activity in 2021? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, 2021 was another good year following 2020, which was an incredibly volatile, but ultimately positive year as well. The S&P last year made 70 record closing highs. Uh, it was up 29%. U.S. large cap stocks kind of continued to be the best performing asset class. Every sector was up. Energy actually led the way up 54%. That was a bit of a change from previous years. The best performing stock in the S&P was Devon, uh, Oklahoma City's own Devon. Apple, uh, interestingly, Dexter, you and I have talked about this. Devon was the best performing stock, but its market cap gain was just a tiny fraction of Apple, which had the best market cap gain. So it created the most wealth in the S&P 500. It grew $700 billion last year. Put that in perspective. What company do I know that would be about $700 billion? Well, there's, what, only three trillion dollar plus. So there's very few stocks like Apple's growth alone would have been a top 10, I think, S&P 500 stock. So, yeah, I mean, well, Tesla was a trillion recently. So it it grew 75 percent of Tesla. Tesla. Yeah. Exactly. So pretty remarkable yeah. uh, when you think about it in that regard. Of course, uh, you had the meme stocks last year, which uh, were very interesting and uh, have been very interesting this year, too. So we're seeing some mean reversion, uh, to say the least, for both meme stocks, cryptocurrency, which right. Bitcoin at one point this year already has is, is fallen 50% from its all-time highs. So we're seeing some of the, f- what I would term froth, uh, come out of the market anyway. And that's ultimately, I think, perhaps a positive thing. And I think we can point to what's going on with interest rates and Fed action. People are starting to prepare for a different interest rate environment than we've enjoyed over the last several years. Which we're recording during the week that the Fed has this announcement and they, they come out and so the market reacts. So by the time this recording will come out, uh, we'll have a little bit more news to digest from that. Not to jump ahead, but where do we think we're going to be going And when do you think we'll be getting some type of interest rate hike? What will that affect? How will it affect our portfolios? Sure. Yeah, it looks very likely like uh, the first interest rate increase will come in March, uh, mid-March. That will have some effects once it happens. So, for example, people know, I think by now, that if you're in a money market fund or a bank savings account, as we talked about, you're earning almost nothing, 0.01, 0.02%. That particularly feels like nothing when inflation is running at 7%. So that's a challenge. What you will see once the Fed raises rates is a fairly quick increase in what you're earning there. It'll, it takes a little bit of time for money market funds because they have paper that matures in 30 days. Right. Once that rolls off, you're going to see those interest rates come okay. up a little bit. Sure. The Fed is saying to expect three interest rate increases this okay. year. The market takes into account what the Fed says, but then prices in its own expectations. Mm-hmm. The market's expecting four interest rate increases this year. We'll see what ultimately happens. I think one of the interesting kind of 
thoughts uh, that a lot of people are writing about is this idea of the Fed put, which historically has said if there's economic turmoil and it's moved into even stock market turmoil or a fall in the stock market, the Fed is going to step in, help us out. They're going to cut rates, which ultimately is going to increase the price of assets. That's clearly been true over the last 10 years, really since 0809, the global financial crisis, the Fed is backstop financial markets. Mm-hmm. The uh, And that became known as, as the Fed put. And so anytime there was a bit of a fall, you saw, I think, shorter and shorter periods of time because people would rush in and buy the dip. You hear that term a lot. That does seem to be changing a little bit because the Fed is now being forced by the higher inflation rate to kind of set stock market uh, volatility aside and say, look, we've got to fight inflation, even if that means the market's going to come off a little more than we would like. The economy takes precedent kind of in this standpoint, right? Yeah. And and so one thing that Powell said today was unemployment is so low right now that we have some room here to raise rates. Remember, the Fed has a dual mandate. They want stable prices and full employment. So they have full employment right now. We don't have stable prices. We have prices that are going up too fast. So they they feel like they've got some room to increase rates, tap the brakes on the economy that could, you know, maybe unemployment goes up a little bit, but it's still very, very low. They'd rather see that happen than us have 7 8% inflation, which the problem with that, consumers get kind of anchored into a higher inflation mindset, and that can kind of spiral out of control. We saw that, you know, 70s, early 80s. Right, right. One of the things you said there, Zach, was that this interest rate increase could lead to some market volatility. You're not making a call by any means. You're saying it's possible. Sure. So this leads me to one of the things that you read recently and that you sent around to the firm, Howard Marks from Oak Tree Capital wrote a memo about when to sell. With that memo kind of in mind, what would you tell someone who says the market's at all time highs, it's, we're expecting volatility, I'm just going to go to cash at this point and sell? What would be your response there? Yeah, I, uh, you know, this is something I think probably all advisors have faced and certainly we hear it from clients sometimes, particularly when times look scary. And, you know, the ironic part about that is if you go back to March of 2020, when things looked horrible, economy was shutting down, unemployment spiking, of course, it looked like a great time to sell, right? Well, in fact, (laughs) it was the complete opposite. It was a great time to buy. Let's go back just a month ago from when when we're recording this. Unemployment near all-time lows. Economy looks great. Corporate profits are up. There's tons of cash, tons of savings. Feels like a great time to buy. (laughs) And of course, this year, 2022, we've seen a a near correction in the S&P and near bear market in small cap stocks. So that alone, I think, should tell you that it's very difficult to look around and make a judgment based on what you're seeing in the economy and make a decision about whether to buy or sell a, a stock. To your point, Dexter, Howard Marks wrote a wonderful memo recently, and we'll link to it in the podcast notes called When to Sell. And I just, I thought it was so good. I'll quote it a a little bit as we talk here. I think it helps illuminate how we should optimally think about when to sell assets and why. Does the appreciation of the asset make a difference here? So if I'm sitting on a very appreciated asset, for example, let's say I bought Tesla at the right time, should I sell now because I want to book my profits? Right. And that's a common way of thinking about it. And Marx talks about that a little bit in his memo. I think the answer to that is, if you sell, where are you going next and why? Like, ultimately, 
we go back to why we invest money. We know we're putting money at risk, right? And the idea is we're going to invest for some future goal and we have a positive expected rate of return. So when you make a decision to sell and let's set aside, hey, I need to sell because I got to pay my mortgage or whatever it is. Like right. that's yeah. naturally part of what you do. Maybe you're in retirement. There are good reasons to sell there to create cash flow to, to live on. But if it's selling because you're scared or he talks about the aphorism that no one ever went broke taking a profit. And his comment was, that may be relevant to people who invest part-time for themselves, but it really should have no place in professional investing. The reason should really be based on the outlook for that investment, not the psyche of the investor. And I'm quoting again uh, from Marx here. And it really should be through identified through hard-headed financial analysis, rigor, and discipline. And ultimately what it is, is a discipline of relative selection. Expand on that discipline of relative selection. What does that mean? Yeah. So if you're going to sell Tesla, you have to go somewhere with that cash. And I think what we see too frequently is this uh, very simplistic view of I'm scared the market's going to go down, so we should sell. And the implication is everything. We should sell all our stocks. And of course, if you do that, then you're going to own cash once you sell all those stocks. You're going to probably pay some tax if you're doing this from a taxable account. And so you're going from owning a, an asset that has a positive expected rate of return, a, a stock or a diversified portfolio. And for ease here, let's move our example from Tesla to the S&P yeah. 500 index fund. Yeah. That's going to feel a lot better definitely, for us. Definitely yeah. a better example. So you're going from a diversified portfolio that historically speaking has earned about 10.5% per year over a very long period of time to an asset that right now in cash is right. earning nothing and in economic reality is losing about 7% a year. So you are making a relative selection there for an asset that is going to lose money in real purchasing power. And the question becomes, okay, if you think the S&P has a positive long-term rate of return that is around 10.5%, and if you have a very different view than that, then I guess you'd have to explain that to me because that's history tells us that's about what stocks do. Then why would you sell even if you expect stocks to dip and that dip is temporary? I'll, I'll play devil's advocate here. I'm going to sell because all of the conditions are right for the market to drop. I'm going to go to cash for a short period of time yep. and, and short meaning relative three, again. Three, six months, whatever. Three, six yep. months until the market, until I see the market start to rise. So yep. that's, that's why I'm selling, Zach, is because I've got a thesis that we are set up for the market to fall and I'm going to pick up some some performance here by sitting in cash and going down less than the market does. Let's talk about, I agree, that is often the thought process. So let's talk about, there is one way that you're right is that the market falls. Let's talk about all the ways you can be wrong, if, if you see that. And sure. I've seen so many people try to do this that these are all true. So one, the decline just might not occur. You might just be wrong. Think about, again, going back to March of 2020, lots of people sold back then for reasons that, you know, were economically valid if you were just like, hey, we're going to shut down the global economy. But it turns out if you sold then for that and waited for that three to six month period, right. you missed out on one of the greatest wealth creation opportunities in our investing lifetimes. So there are numerous examples of people doing that and doing it incorrectly. So that's one way. Go ahead. Tom. And think about, you know, 08, 09. It was a longer period of time for people to get back in. But I don't I think the same people that would have got out at the beginning of 08 got out in March of 20 and neither time to ride to get back in. That's right. And then especially now, if 
heck, the past couple of days, it's like by noon, you want to sell it all. By three, you don't feel as bad. But I think you're right. It, it doesn't matter if it's a long expansion and contract or contraction and expansion. It doesn't matter if it's really short. Yep. It, it's still the same principle. And I, I like where you're going with this. I, I think well, it's well, spot you, on. You hit the second nail in the head, which is if you get out, you have to make a second decision, right. which is when do I get back in? So you have two decisions, both of which could be right or wrong. And you also have to make decisions about timing when you get out and when you get back in. So there's really four effective yeah. decisions. Right. A fifth decision is once you get out, what are you going to put your money in? And and you can only put 10000 in I-bonds. So, there's, so we've already taken <laughs> that off the table. So very likely you're going to be sitting in cash, which again, in a, perhaps a low inflationary environment, a deflationary environment, maybe that works out. In today's environment, again, you're locking in losses right. in real terms if you sit in cash. And, and maybe you go to something else. Maybe you get out of the stock market and you go to Bitcoin and Bitcoin gets cut in half in a month, which we effectively just saw. All of those things are possible. So the more decisions you make, and we've talked about this in the in past podcasts, and, and when it comes to probabilistic decision making, the more decisions you have to make, the more opportunity you have for screwing one up and getting it wrong and destroying value. So another thing that Marx points out as well is Oftentimes, and I, I've seen this in my career too, if a person makes that call and they're right, so often they, there's a lot of behavioral finance stuff that goes on there. They are like, oh man, I'm smart. I figured this out. And that often causes them to double down on that belief that the market will continue going down. So oftentimes you see those people stay in cash way longer even as the market's going back up and they have a really hard time getting back in because they're worried that as soon as they buy, the market's going to fall again. I want to hit on something because I think it, this is something we've talked about and ideally at some point we'll do a two or three part conversation around this, around this behavioral finance idea. But I think what's important for our clients to hear, any listeners of this podcast to hear, we're by no means saying they shouldn't feel the way they feel, right? right, And I think that's the difference is we expect you to be a little nervous when you're looking at the market. We don't expect somebody to look at that and be happy. Of course. And so I think it's acknowledging that you absolutely have, the, that is your nest egg, that's your money, that's your wealth that you've created. So how, how have you gone about that when you're having, really either of you having conversations from the investment side of things? It's an emotional topic. That's a great, great point. People their emotions are absolutely real and they have to be acknowledged. Sure. And it's, you guys don't like to see your portfolio values go down. I, I'm kind of sick. I don't mind it because I'm a net buyer. And I think that's something Warren Buffett's talked about a lot. If you're young, you really should root for the market to go down because, you know, if you're going to buy 10 hamburgers next week, you're happy when the price of beef goes down. You're not right. unhappy at all. Like, But stocks we view differently for whatever reason because right. we like to feel wealthy on paper. But in reality, if you're 35 and you've got a 40-year time horizon, 30, 40-year time horizon before you're going to need that money, you want to buy as many stocks as cheaply as possible while you're working. So that's one component of it. The other thing that, and I've had this conversation a lot with clients recently, we've had great markets. So a lot of clients are ahead of where their financial plan might yeah, have right. it's indicated. A good point. Yeah. And so some of them are just in a position where they're, they want to take a little bit less risk and sleep better at night. If you're not sleeping well at night, then you have too risky a portfolio. The only challenge there, and, and this is kind of a worst case scenario, I think, for an advisor, is if you have a very risk averse client 
hasn't maybe saved as well as they should have. And therefore, they have to take a lot of stock market risk to achieve the sort of retirement they want. Then you're caught between a rock and a hard place because they either take less risk and sacrifice lifestyle on down the line or they don't sleep well, but ultimately they take the right. risk to earn those sorts of returns. Well, and, and there's in my mind, there's three ways to create wealth or, or to give yourself more in retirement or to give yourself more. You can make more money. Yep. You can save more. Or you can spend less. Yeah. Or work longer, I'll add. Or you can work longer. Yes. Which is a variation of make more money. Exactly. Yes. Yep. Yep. And so if those are my four options, let's say, the hardest one to me, I think, is saving more and spending less. And yep. maybe in that order. Yep. Because if you save more, you're probably going to have to spend less, right? Because yep. your your net income is lower. So that's easier to have a conversation with somebody in their 50s than somebody that's retiring. There's no more to save. To your point, it is a conversation of helping them understand that risk appetite maybe adjust it. But yes, we want the clients to sleep at night. Absolutely. We also want to help them live as long as they can on the money they've made. That's right. So kind of spinning all of this together between your thoughts and then what Mark's wrote, what are you to do then? What's the takeaway? Sure. So if you'll forgive me, I want to read one of Oak Tree's founding principles. If you would, before you do that, describe a little bit about Howard Marks and Oak Tree for those who aren't, who don't know and aren't going to Google it. Sure. Oak Tree's been around 37 years this year. Howard Marks has a tremendous inv uh, investment track record. He's a CFA. Not that we think they're just the best, but, you know, they know a little something. They kind of specialize in distressed debt. So they're looking for opportunities that, that, uh, where the market is really beat up with security. And they have several founding principles that they talk about on their website. They manage $158 billion, by the way. So they've done well enough over time to right. attract a lot of capital. Yeah. So And attract capital from very intelligent people like endowment funds who, Correct. who, who have a very rigorous investment selection process. That's right. Good point. Institutional money. Yes, they've done very well. So when Howard created the company, he laid out his founding principles. You can go to Oak Tree's website. This is you can find all of Howard Marx's memos on the website. You can also find their uh, founding principles on the website. But I'm just going to read this. I think it's tremendously good. So he says one of the founding principles is because we do not believe in the predictive ability required to correctly time markets, we keep portfolios fully invested whenever attractively priced assets can be bought. Concern about the market climate may cause us to tilt toward more defensive investments, increase selectivity, or act more deliberately, but we never move to raise cash. Clients hire us to invest in specific market niches, and we must never fail to do our job. Holding investments that decline in price is unpleasant, but missing out on returns because we failed to buy what we were hired to do is inexcusable. My thought as I read that is if... Howard Marks at Oak Tree Capital doesn't think he can time the market and go to cash and jump back in. Why do so many people think that that's possible? It just, there's so much evidence that you cannot do it successfully and it destroys value on average over time. As an allocator of capitals, you're not necessarily trying to invest in specific market niches. How do you translate some of what Howard Marks said to full sales investment process? Right. So, through the financial planning process, as Tyler talked about, there is a place for cash if you have liquidity needs. There's a place for more defensive investments like bonds, as you, particularly as you get older and you want your portfolio to be less risky. All those things have a place. We are allocators. That's correct, Dexter. What Marks can't do and you can't do and I can't do and no one can do well consistently over time is get in and out of the market and add value that way. So you have to recognize that, in my view, 
as an investor in order to be successful in as an advisor or if you're a retail investor or a do-it-yourselfer out there. It's just exceedingly unlikely that you're going to make all of those, what, five, six, seven, eight decisions, getting out of the market, getting back in, timing it right, going to the right asset outside of the market. It's just very unlikely to happen. The other thing that we didn't talk about, but Marks uh, writes about in his memo is just the power of compounding over time. If you're a relatively young person and you start investing, you know, we can do the rule of 72, right? So 10% per year, you double your money in about seven years, right? At 7% a year, so let's be more conservative, it's about 10 years to, to double your money. So if you're a young person and you just invest consistently over time and you're in the market, history tells us that you're going to do very well over time. There's no reason to try to get way cuter than that. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's that's what I preach when I'm in front of all of our retirement plans. And the beauty of it is they by default are making 24, 26 contributions every single year. Right. And I, I tell them the same thing we just talked about is you, ideally payroll hits on a day when the market's down. Now, you're not rooting for it, but, but you kind of are. And that creates that big snowball you're talking about. You know, the other thing, that same example of all those choices that have to be made, I think we're having the same conversation with people that are come into cash, sell a business right. or whatever it may be. They have some liquidity event that wasn't out of the market. Now they have to decide when do I put my money into the market? So they've cut down on that one decision of when to sell, but they're still having that same, when do I get in? How much do I put in? Yep. And so I think we've even talked about this in past episodes of there's an argu- argument to be made. doesn't matter what the market's at, just put it in. That's right. Right? Academically, yes. And the, the math is so simple there. I think people miss it sometimes. The market goes up over time. On average, uh, I think it's like 51% of days are up and 49% yeah. are down, right? So every day you wait, you're flipping a coin, but it's a weighted coin that is in favor of being invested. Right. So absolutely, could you wait six months and get in a better time? It's possible, but it's less likely than you just invest your money. You're likely to be better off. From a probabilistic thinking standpoint, it is a value destructive behavior. That's right. A marginally value destructive behavior, which is why I will often bend to a client's wishes because you also have to take into account the real pain that people feel prospect theory, right? Absolutely. Like the hurt from a loss you feel as a human much more than the pleasure from a gain. That is a well-known behavioral finance thing. So I like to take that into account, but from a pure hard-headed dollars and cents standpoint, probabilistically thinking, yes, you should take your $5 million you got from selling your business and you should invest it in the market as soon as it comes in. That is the academically correct thing to do. Tyler, that was all I had. You have a question for us for those who are earlier on in their (laughs) generational wealth building? Question from the audience. So I think the question that I think would be interesting to get some feedback on, we've hit on where the market's at. We've hit on the volatility. We've hit on interest rates, inflation, all that. So I think at this point, people understand where we stand and what we think is happening and, and where we think it's going. I've got consumer debt. Does it make sense in all those scenarios to take that cash, but I want to pay off debt? Does it make sense to get some money out of the market to pay off debt. When does that make sense? If I have cash sitting, does it make sense to pay off debt? I feel like that's an easy answer right now because of inflation. But the consumer debt conversation, and I mean everything, I, I, I'm having conversations around mortgages even, and mortgage rates are at all-time lows, but people just, the Dave Ramsey approach, they're, they're just done with it. Before I let Zach come in, I think that devil's in the details here. So borrowing at 2% over 30 years is very, very different from borrowing at 37% for four years. So I think that obviously there's a spectrum here. So I think that that kind of gets skipped past, but 
the devil's in the details, and there really is not a one there between mathematical and psychological. There is not a straightforward answer here. So, with that as your That's premise, fair. Zach, I couldn't agree with you more. It's very similar to the lump sum versus dollar cost average discussion. Like, there is an academically correct answer if you tell me what your uh, borrowing cost is and what the expected rate of return on your investment portfolio is. I can tell you what, in theory, you should do if if your debt is at two percent, as you said, Dexter, and your portfolio is expected to earn seven or eight percent. It's very justifiable from an academic standpoint to keep that money in the market. Right. That said, there is a psychological benefit to being debt free. I've seen yeah. it many, many times. There's also the fact that portfolio returns are prospective and not guaranteed, whereas the cost of debt is guaranteed. You are going to pay what you're contractually owed to your bank if you're you've got a mortgage. There's some easy ones, obviously, credit card debt or something like that that's high interest rate. It would be silly, I think, to, to do anything credit cards, other than pay it off. Student loans, I think, is the next one where you have a varying range of, of interest rates. Yeah. Student loans have been interesting, too, because now you've got this wild card of is it student loan debt forgiveness yep. and deferrals and things like that that have to be taken into account. So, yeah, there's – and the other thing I'd say, obviously, you know, if – we deal almost exclusively with high net worth folks, and this isn't really something we have to think about much. But if you're not, if you're or, uh, maybe the kid of a client and you're starting out, you should have a savings uh, fund. You should have a, an emergency fund that in case something happens, I think there was a study or a news article that came out, you know, if if you had a thousand dollar expense, could you right. afford it without going into debt? And a, a shockingly scary mm. high number of people can't do that without the going into The other fall one I like to that one is, I think it's Dave Ramsey, but I could be wrong, did the study. If you have a three to six month emergency fund, you are paid significantly more than other people because you can wait out finding a good job. Right. Yeah, that's another good point. So yeah, it's insurance, but it's insurance against unexpected events that can ultimately pay off. That's right. And, and, you know, the other thing I'd say, Tyler, as you're talking about, and, and this isn't really even consumer debt, I guess, but there are certainly arguments for particular asset classes. So something like a core real estate investment, historically, it's made a lot of sense to borrow to increase your return on a safe real estate investment. And that's how yep. a lot of people have made a lot of money. There is risk anytime you take on debt on any sort of asset, the less diversified you are, the more concentrated in one particular investment, the more risk you're taking. So you have to take that into account. But I differentiate a little bit between taking on debt to buy a productive asset versus taking on debt to buy a boat or a car or something that's going to uh, depreciate. Dream, dream exactly. crusher. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> No, that's unless great. it's a sailboat, and then, then you know, yeah, full sails ahead. I hope what we communicated was the intricacy of this question is why people really need to work with someone and help get a good answer to this question and have it depend on what your financial goals are and whether or not this moves you toward or away from them. That's exactly right. Couldn't agree more. You guys are awesome. Until next time, fair winds and following seas. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please review and subscribe through your preferred podcast platform. Have a great week. All opinions expressed by the host and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Full Sail Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Full Sail may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.